1: Thursday morning, the 17th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. European leaders meet in Brussels as agreement is reached between the EU and the UK on how customs will be arranged after Brexit and how the Stormont Assembly would have a role in consent after Brexit. There is speculation that obstacles relating to how VAT would be applied north and south of the Irish border can be overcome and that a proposed deal could now be put to the House of Commons on Saturday for ratifying a Brexit withdrawal agreement. That's the good news for anyone hoping for a deal. The bad news now is that the reality of the situation is that this could very well be the next Brexit referendum in its starting stages in the United Kingdom because of opposition predominantly from the Democratic Union party. The DUP said no to the deal. At 7 this morning it published a statement about its ongoing discussions with the government as things stand. The DUP said it could not support what is being suggested on customs and consent issues and there is a lack of clarity on that. The statement concluded we will work, we will continue to work with the government to try and get a sensible deal that works for Northern Ireland and protects the economic and constitutional integrity of the United Kingdom. Let's talk about this with Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for South Down and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Is it right to interpret that to mean that the DUP is rejecting what is being agreed in Brussels out of hand?
2: We're certainly rejecting the proposals on the crucial issues of customs and consent. Uh, As you know our leader and deputy leader spent most of yesterday in Downing Street being updated regularly on what was going on in Brussels. There's two crucial issues, two bottom lines, as it were, for Northern Ireland, and it looks like both um, have not been negotiated satisfactorily, um, and we have a right to say that. And uh, I'm glad that Arlene and Nigel have come out so clearly at seven this morning to say that um, there's still a lot of work to be done.
1: Is there anything that you can say to bring some hope uh, to these ongoing discussions?
2: Quite simply, what the DUP want is the right to be consulted and give its consent before a major change is implemented on this part of the United Kingdom. In exactly the same way the people of Lowther, Donegal or Galway would like to think if there was a major change that changed their status within the Irish Republic, that they would also be uh, consulted about it. So that's the first issue. And secondly, on the customs, uh, Northern Ireland must remain firmly within the single market for British customs, the UK customs union, anything that detaches us from that, we would see as causing enormous problems, given the fact that over two-thirds of our trade is within that customs union. So, I mean, we're we're a unionist party, we're unashamedly so, but frankly Mike, you know, we, you and so many others in the Irish Republic worship at the Temple of the Good Friday Agreement. I'm not a great fan of it. But that agreement says that no major change can occur in Northern Ireland without the consent of the nationalist community and the consent of the unionist community. And it would seem that the consent mechanism is overriding that, and that is a major problem to us as unionists.
1: So there's no prospect of uh, Northern Ireland uh, coming under European customs regulations unless that applies to all of the United Kingdom. Is that your position?
2: Well, well, it, it, well I don't know what the stumbling block in the customs union is, uh, but I have an idea that what has been negotiated is something that takes us further away from the British Customs Union and leaves us stranded within the European Customs Union. Now, the problem about that is, is if there's no consent mechanism, then we're in there in perpetuity. And the only way out would be with the consent of these 27 other member states. And that, of course, includes the Irish. And the Irish have made it very clear that the price that they would charge us to get out of that would be so extra strong, so mm. difficult that we just couldn't do it. So therefore, I think that everything revolves around the consent, because if you have a consent mechanism, then that means if things do unravel to the detriment of Northern Ireland, at least we can pull out at a later stage, mm. or indeed we can uh, decide not to go in in the first place. The difficulty here is that it looks like we're going to be stranded in, in what we call the hotel, hotel California syndrome, where we can mm. check out any time, we can never leave. And I, I think no... Got a party, Fine Gael, Fine foil. nobody would leave Galway or Donegal in that position so I leave Northern Ireland.
1: So you don't want to have sure. separate uh, customs arrangements to the rest of the UK, at least not without your consent and the consent of nationalists, but if that was to be the case, uh, you would believe uh, that you should have a, a veto on leaving such an arrangement uh, without the consent of nationalists necessarily?
2: Well, well, but that's the system that we've had to live under since 1998, Good Friday Agreement forces us Mm. to do everything on the basis of both consent from both communities and can I tell you Mike, Mm. on many occasions that mechanism has been to the detriment of unionism but we've had to accept it reluctantly. So you can't turn around then Mm. and change the rules 21 years later because you can't get what you want.
1: And I'm not asking you to, I'm just asking you what your position is and you are explaining it uh, very clearly to be fair to you and it seems to be no, 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 no to customs, no to consent and no to VAT at least uh, which uh, VAT as we understand it because that's uh, too unclear at this stage.
2: Yes, well, Donegal is effectively landlocked, surrounded by Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. I think they would want to be consulted and have their consent before a major change would leave them stranded mm. in a British customs union. It is unreasonable. You said you're, you're trying to create us as being very negative, but do no. we have a right to be consulted on these issues?
1: No, I, I, I'm not trying to uh, portray it as being negative. Uh, I, I'm trying to understand what the reality of the situation is, because it is obviously a very important uh, matter for people uh, across all of this island and further afield. Uh, but the situation seems to be that the DUP is saying no to what is being proposed. Uh, and the question then is, should Boris Johnson bring it back, uh, if he is to make some sort of a, an agreement with uh, the rest of Europe, should he bring it back to the House of Commons on Saturday, or is that a waste of time? I think you've told us before he can't do it without the support of the DUP, and you can take members of uh, the E or G with you.
2: Yes. I think, Mike, being realistic about it, it was a edge. It was on a knife edge, even had Nigel and Diane announced this morning it was the best thing since sliced bread. The fact that we have said no to it, for very good logical reasons, means that there are certainly members of the ERG who would take their guidance from the DUP. So I think we're in a situation now where it's, it's probably impossible to get the deal through on Saturday. That being the case, then we're left with two options. One is a hard Brexit, which probably is illegal under what's called the Benn Act. And the second is to ask for a further extension of the uh, negotiating period. Um, Nobody wants that. Everybody wanted clarity this morning. But I think the vote, uh, I think the whips will do take their soundings and I think they'll find it's going to be very, very difficult uh, to to move forward on this deal unless something dramatic happens this morning and of course, as you know, the council of ministers meet this afternoon so that the time couldn't be tighter.
1: Mm. Well, absolutely. Uh, And The peace process is at risk, as we've been hearing over the course of the last week. Uh, The last time I spoke to you, Jim Wells, we were talking about bombs going off in Limerick uh, that would be put there by unionist paramilitaries. Uh, Last night, uh, we heard the so-called new IRA speak to Channel 4 News. And for people who didn't hear it, we'll just hear a little bit of what a masked man had to say to Channel 4. We can hear that
2: now. First of all, there's no such thing as an Irish border. It's a British border. And since its formation, since its inception, the purpose of the IRA has
3: been to take action against all such infrastructure of British occupation. When you say take action, the IRA would take action against such infrastructure. Tell us what you mean. The IRA is an army. And as
2: an army, we're committed to armed struggle for political and social change. And bearing that in mind... Any installation or aspects of British occupation within six counties, be it at the border or elsewhere, any infrastructure would be a legitimate target for attack and armed actions against those infrastructures and against
1: the people who are manning them. That's a very clear message, isn't it, Jim Wells? Uh,
2: it's chilling.
4: Isn't and it? Yeah.
2: certainly you cannot make policy on the basis of threats from uh, uh, mad terrorists who are out to cause mayhem both north and south mm. i mean
1: and on both sides uh, I, mean, yes, I mean but,
2: but, but, you, but, but not, you cannot simply bow the knee to those threats i mean If the policy's right, it's right, and you cannot allow a tiny, small group of militants to dictate in a democracy. But at the same
1: time, uh, it does highlight one of the reasons why we should not uh, look for a a no-deal Brexit, and I think that is your position and the position of your party that you would like to see uh, negotiated withdrawal from the European Union. Uh, Of course. Yeah. So so, so, what's the prospect for that? Uh, do you believe that I, I, I was right at the outset this morning in suggesting that the next step is another referendum?
2: Well, uh, there would seem to be an increase in support for a second referendum at Westminster, but certainly Boris Johnson and our own party made it very clear that they would not be supporting that because we don't do what the Irish do, Mike. We don't have the best out of three. We don't be dictated to Europe that if if Europe doesn't like your first decision, then you're forced to go back to a second one like the the Irish were. And of course, the the problem, Mike, is first of all, that would plunge us into another year and a half of of uncertainty and and uh, chaos, to be honest about it. It would split the country right down the middle. And what would happen if by a, a narrow majority we voted to remain within Europe? Well, then, I mean, the, the demands would be then for a third referendum. I mean, we had the largest exercise in democracy in British history 17.4 million people made their views known. Unfortunately, then mm. we turned around and elected a Remain Parliament. And that has been the problem that we've faced ever since. Um, I believe what's probably going to happen is that Boris Johnson will pull the vote on Saturday and that we will we'll be faced with an extension. Boris will try his but best, but Europe won't give that, you an but extension
1: think, unless there's a basis for an extension.
2: Well, the Europe may not. I mean, the Hungarians could be minded to vote against it, and does require mm. unanimity.
1: Amongst well, the I amongst did hear members. the Swedish European Minister this morning say that perhaps the basis for an extension is another referendum.
2: Well, you know that. Well, first of all, that would require legislation. It would probably would also require an election before it was even held. There are so many hurdles to to overcome here. We would oppose it. We would vote against it. And we believe the decision of the UK population is settled on this issue. And we're not going to be dictated to by Europe as to what we do as a democracy uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, Mike, I've appeared with you many times over mm. the last few months. And could I say that uh, I'm just glad some of these aren't pre-recorded because the following day, what I would have said would appear to be absolute yeah. nonsense because mm. the situation moving so quickly that it's very hard to predict. So therefore mm. I my my gut feeling is that it's not going to run on Saturday. Um, you don't you and I know something could happen dramatically tomorrow morning. Or indeed they could call another Council of Ministers meeting next week. Mm. That's the other option. I mean anything can happen in this business and the one thing is i've learned is not to put my shirt on any outcome as far as breakfast.
1: but there's nothing to talk about next week uh, because there isn't a support for what has already been agreed they'll be back to the drawing board uh, predominantly because of dup objections which you are entitled to but does that mean that the most likely outcome if it's not a referendum will be a general election
2: i think i think well of course Mike <laughs> Just to say to you, the only way there can be a general election is if the Labour Party in the United Kingdom agreed to it. And up to now, they have st- steadfastly opposed it. The other problem is that the, the opinion polls here are showing that Boris Johnson will romp home a sort of general election tomorrow. And that provides great difficulties for the Labour Party, who would lose scores of seats. So everywhere you turn on Brexit mm. at the minute, you come up against a brick wall. And it, it, can could, could I say something, Mike, that I haven't mm. said to any other presenter? Not even to Pat Kenny last night. I, was, I appeared before the highest paid TV presenter last night, and now I'm <laughs> here before the highest paid local radio presenter. Can I say, could it be that this problem is insoluble? That there are just problems in life which simply can't be solved? Because I'm beginning to wonder, with all of the various permutations, what exactly are we going to do to get out of this problem? Because I have wrecked my brains about it. <laughs> it wouldn't take very long, as most people would say. I can't see the solution to this at the moment. I just can't see it.
1: Okay, we'll leave it on that uh, dull note, uh, and thank you as always for joining us. Jim Wells, DUP MLA for Southdown.
5: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed
1: on, on LMFM. No, no, no. The DUP says no to customs. The DUP says no to consent, and uh, the DUP probably says no to VAT, which is uh, the one of uh, the three issues uh, that has not been uh, agreed otherwise uh, by uh, the UK's negotiators and uh, the Brexit European team. Marie McGuinness, first vice president of the European Parliament, and Finnegale MEP is on the line now. And a very good morning morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Goodness, Jim Wells of the DUP told us a moment ago that perhaps this is just not solvable and that there is no solution as far as he can see. Uh, but you've been saying this morning that the DUP or any party for that matter should not have a veto on this.
6: Yeah, well, I suppose there's been so much a few hours that it's hard to take a breath on it. Um, I think that there was progress made yesterday, you've just summarised that, that there's one remaining issue, the VAT issue, to be resolved. But there's been a very clear indication from the negotiators on the EU side that we're not sure that there's going to be a deal. Uh, but the deal does have to um, come up with a legally operable solution to avoid a hard border in Ireland, maintain the all-Ireland economy and preserve the integrity of the single market. And that's what was achieved in what was agreed on customs and on the role of Stormont. Then the DUP state. Came in, and I suppose I'm trying to hear. Uh, happy there. I,
1: I'm sorry, yeah. The, 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 the to... line. I'm sorry, Mairead, the line dropped out oh. on us there. I'm sorry, I yeah, beg your I pardon. Do,
6: yeah, and and yeah. I'm on a landline, so <laughs> apologies to yeah. you and your listeners mm-hmm. on that point. Uh, I, I hope I, I can pick up just to say that the DUP statement. Um, Some are saying it's not a surprise, but I think it is a little bit surprising because I would have thought that the British Prime Minister was keeping them abreast of the negotiations. Now, what is difficult to see is how we get out of this issue, because we are at the last step of the negotiations. The leaders meet later today. The British Prime Minister needs to be able to say he can get the deal if it comes to it over the line in the House of Commons. It the doesn't look that way, does it? Exactly, and this is this is we're back to this conundrum, mm. that if the numbers don't stack up in the House of Commons, no matter what we agree to, it cannot be ratified because there will be a coalition of uh, harder line Brexiteers and Remain MPs, and they were here yesterday. Mm. Parliament who will vote against it. And I think one of the things that Boris Johnson will face is questions on can he deliver um, a majority for anything that might be agreed. The big issue though from the DUP statement is uh, the question of whether Europe is prepared to go back again and reopen the issues of customs and Stormont. I don't see that happening. I think that that would be just a step too far given that we have spent so long getting to where we're at today and mm. it seems that we're going backwards
1: rather than forward. Okay, there's uh, probably four... Possibilities four options uh, this morning uh, for the leaders to contemplate. One is uh, to call the whole thing off. Uh, maybe there is no solution, as uh, Jim Wells says, uh, and uh, it'll be a hard Brexit uh, that they'll crash out. Uh, the other, then, is uh, to allow for an extension on requests for a referendum to be held or for a general election to be held or both. Uh, or the fourth, then, uh, a short extension, uh, a few days perhaps, uh, to uh, allow some time to come up with this.
6: Okay, well let me just deal with all of that. I think regardless of what's just happened in the last few hours, I think it's very difficult to see everything being uh, go through the legal process in, in the European Parliament mm. and the House of Commons and through the leaders by the 31st of October. So an extension might be necessary anyway, perhaps a short extension. On the other hand, um, if you look at the dynamics of the House of Commons, there is a move to say uh, that MPs might support a deal but they would want, um, if you like, a referendum tagged to it on whether voters would support what has been agreed or not. The idea of no, that there's no solution and there has to be a hard Brexit, I I mean, that just doesn't stack up. Even with a hard Brexit, the issues that are problematic don't disappear. In fact, they're just harder to deal with Mm. because the relationships would be particularly bad between the European Union and the United Kingdom. But we'd have to solve them. We would have to honour our commitments to the Good Friday. Would have to resolve the financial issues and citizens' rights. So anyone who's suggesting there's no solution, we have to have a no deal Brexit is not close to the reality of the situation. And
1: well, I think he made a very good argument, uh, and if I can just put the argument to you, he was saying that he, he would like a solution, but he doesn't believe there's a solution because he doesn't believe that a, a referendum would be the next or the right thing to do because it, it, even if you had a referendum and people voted uh, in uh, support uh, of staying in uh, the European Union or whatever, people would be looking for a third referendum and you'd be at it forever. Uh, he was then saying that if you have an election Boris Johnson is going to win it anyway uh, so uh, where is the solution if that is uh, the case? Uh, and when it comes to a referendum, the DUP and others will vote against it.
6: Well, just pull you back a little bit here about uh, we're not asking or suggesting a referendum, but I know there is moves uh, afoot that there would be not a referendum to stay or leave, but a referendum mm. on whatever the deal is, that voters would have an opportunity to accept it, reject it. So that's that issue. On the question then of another election, I thought there might be one in November in the UK, but apparently that is less likely, but who knows, these things move, uh, ebb and flow. And in that case, if Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, was successful in getting an overall majority without the support of uh, the DUP, for example, it might be easier to uh, reach an agreement. But the main point is, regardless of how we argue and are logical and whatever, if there is a no-deal Brexit... Nothing changes with the problematic issues. They remain on the table, and whoever is leading Europe or the United Kingdom can walk away from their responsibilities to those issues. We cannot ignore citizens' rights. We certainly can't ignore the Irish question. So they're going to have to be dealt with now or at some stage in the future. And our problem at a European Union level is that this is, you know, three years later, and we look like we might go into another year and nothing is achieved. That how long can we allow our business be delayed uh, and, you know, first the Brexit debate because we have massive problems to deal with. So, you know, really people need to, to wise up on this that, you know, a deal needs to be done. No deal just, it, like, delays us getting to a place that we need to be. And whatever the House of Commons decide and what they might like to see a referendum or not, that's their business. But somebody needs to be able to. Pursue the leaders of Europe that there are sufficient numbers in the house of and um, pass through whatever otherwise we've you know we're spending a lot of time treading water and getting our feet cold and getting tired and nobody not rather making this big leap that we need to see
1: yeah uh, do you think uh, that there's uh, the possibility that people will be really annoyed uh, if uh, Today, Boris Johnson says he hasn't got the numbers in the House of Commons uh, to go back with what he has been agreeing with, what his negotiators have been agreeing on behalf of his government.
6: Well, look, I think the leaders know that this is an ongoing um, debacle and whatever we might feel or, or, or whatever, we have to listen to what the uh, Prime Minister will tell the leaders today. I'm not so sure that Boris Johnson will want to come with that message, but it may be the only message that there is. And I suppose allied and linked to that then is if nothing can move and we're in this standstill, um, the issue then is for the House of Commons uh, to perhaps insist That the law is is uh, uh, complied with, and that the minister Boris Johnson would for an extension beyond the 31st of October. And as you know, he said he will not do that, Mm -hmm. but the law says otherwise. There is also some speculation that there could be another summit before the end of this month. Perhaps that would be the timeline. Where, if nothing can be discussed today around Brexit. And there is a report from the Prime Minister um, and from Michel Barnier that then there would be a decision to come back again, meet at the end of October, to try and see if progress has been made at that stage. But, you know, it may not be the end of the story either. Mm-hmm. You know, apparently this issue that um, the, the the role of Stormont is, is certainly an issue. Um, and there was in this provision, and we haven't seen the text, but what we're being told is that Stormont would if you like, vote on whether the Northern Ireland should remain in this uh, unique customs arrangement and that would happen four years after um, this would uh, Mm. kick into place and then could vote again in four years and after that, if if they remained in in place, could be eight years before. Mm. But equally, and this is the complication, if after four years there was um, a vote in favour of pulling out of this arrangement, there would be a two-year cooling-off period in order to find a way to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. So whichever way we turn on this, there are hard choices to be made. And I suppose if we could remove some of the emotion, and we all have that baggage on our shoulders, and face the facts, then we could get over the line on this. But where there is, you know, staunch politics on one side or deep emotion on another you know, that's where things become very difficult uh, in and around the negotiating table.
1: Mm. Uh, do you see light at the end of the tunnel?
6: To be honest with you, um, I'm not sure that there's a tunnel anymore, Um, and I'm looking out, which I'm glad to do, and it's bringing a smile to my face. It's very sunny here today in Brussels. It looks great. Yesterday was horrible, Right. but I think the political atmosphere is just the exact opposite of that. This morning, we're a bit dismayed about the twists and turns, whereas last night, in the rain, it looked a bit better.
1: You're more in the Shawshank Redemption sewer, is it, than uh, seeing light at the end of the tunnel?
6: At the end, though, he did get out of that
1: office uh, or, so maybe yeah. there is light. OK, uh, we'll explain that maybe a little bit later on because of uh, one of the headlines in one of the British newspapers uh, this morning talking about uh, the Shawshank redemption uh, in relation yeah. to Brexit. Uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme as always. Braid beginners, Fine Gael, MEP, and first vice-president of the European Parliament.
5: Michael Reed
1: on LMFM. There's been a significant and a steady decline in uh, the number of uh, people who die. From fires occurring in their homes over the course of uh, the last 15 years. This is according to the Health Research Board, uh, which says that there's a number of reasons for that decline. Uh, community fire safety programs and uh, the increased use of uh, domestic smoke alarms as two prime examples. But they've looked at 101 domestic fires that took place between 2014 and 2016 in the 101 fires that we're talking about, 106 people lost their lives, and of those 106 people, 51% of them had alcohol in their blood. Of the people who had alcohol in their blood, two thirds of them were more than three times the legal drink driving limit. The HRB says that the alcohol that they consumed reduced their ability to respond to a fire as it affects their balance and coordination and can result in a possible loss of consciousness for that matter. Dr. Sheila gilhini Chief Executive Officer of Alcohol Action Ireland, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Sheila, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. They're pretty shocking statistics, aren't they?
5: Uh, They are so sad, uh, very, very tragic actually to to read it and I'm I'm very conscious, you know, just as we're talking, you know, that there are people listening who, you know, maybe have had a family member who died in, you know, these circumstances and just my heart goes out actually to anyone who's been affected in, in this particular way.
1: And it brings to mind the idea that it can be dangerous uh, to drink alcohol and that you can be vulnerable for many reasons. Uh, But the HRB is also advising against drinking alcohol with prescription medicines, uh, which could also be an additional factor in this.
5: Absolutely. And I think actually, um, you know, one of the things that it it really points to is... I suppose the need when, you know, any healthcare professional or, you know, people around, you know, somebody that they're in contact and there's an opportunity maybe to talk to people about, you know, their, their use of alcohol. So, you know, particularly um, when a doctor might be prescribing, say, sleeping tablets um, and or it's and actually one of the things that was pointed out was, you know, quite a number of people had other drugs like antidepressants, um, anti-anxiety medication. And we would know that, um, you know, using alcohol when there is a problem with something like depression or anxiety, uh, is 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 an exacerbation. It doesn't help matters. It actually only makes things worse. So there's an opportunity maybe just to to talk to people about their alcohol consumption. Really to I suppose to, you know, put out that message that mm. um, you know drinking. Uh, can can have consequences that you know you don't immediately think of at at uh, at, the, at the time when you're having the drink and uh, be very conscious that um <clears throat> within the statistics that was mentioned you know was yeah. highlighting people um who are older men um living alone and you know you can just sort of see the vulnerability and the uh, and the isolation mm. that, that that can be there well
1: if you can establish a, a pattern from uh, this research uh, <laughs> you're more at risk whether you're male or female and aged over sixty five more at risk again if you are male or single or living in a rural area.
5: Yes and in terms of you know the deaths that, that were analysed you know here that you know those, those groups were more representative if you like uh, on, on that. So what we would be saying is that you know as was firstly globally overall in Ireland we are drinking at, at a high level and you know when large sections of the population are drinking in a, in a risky high risk fashion it is more likely that there will be consequences you know from that and this very sadly, is is one of the types of consequences that can arise. So we would be saying, you know, where there are opportunities to, to intervene, you know, if, for example, you know, somebody's seeing their GP, they're going back to get a repeat pre- prescription, it's it's worthwhile, you know, for you know, a doctor perhaps to have a chat, you know, with somebody just mm. to talk about, you know, what what is your alcohol consumption like? Are you aware of, you know, low-risk um, drinking guidelines, which for women would be 11 standard drinks in a week, for men, 17 standard drinks. And, and you have
1: a to percent. cut that in half, really, because when you're talking about units, uh, there's usually two units, in a drink and a pint of beer for example. Uh,
5: a, a pint of beer yeah, is actually yeah, two mm, standard yeah, drinks, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, a, yeah. a standard drink <coughs> is, is, in fact mm. in this case is a half pint of beer mm. or a small glass of wine. Well
1: it's 100 meant 100 to be a glass of wine, but I think what most people would consider to be a glass of wine would be three or four units in uh, fact. Ab- yeah, absolutely, yeah,
5: yeah, yeah. what they mean by a small mm-hmm, glass mm-hmm, of wine is 100 millilitres so that, but, that is really a mm-hmm. small, small amount. And
1: that you'd, you'd have wine. seven glasses of wine in a bottle or thereabouts. Yes. Right, and when you say we drink at high levels, we drink at very high levels in fact, in Ireland we drink 80% more than people drink on average around the world. Yes,
5: we, we do. We, we really are at, at a very high level and I think because it's so high in Ireland and we're within Europe and Europe itself is the highest um, drinking region in the world as as well, that we're not just always conscious that, that this is actually uh, a risky thing that, that, that we're doing um, because it's Sort of so socially acceptable, and it's it's seen in in that kind of a way. Even the very fact that you know we're having to you know just sort of talk through the, what what a glass of wine actually mm. is in terms of a of a standard drink, because we've got used to larger portions, larger amounts, mm. uh, you know, being being available.
1: Well, that's at a half a bottle of wine is a glass of wine for some people
5: yeah and indeed because glasses themselves have actually got quite big um you know so um th- th- there's there's many things around that and I, I suppose it's taking all of these things into account uh, uh, you know a few decades ago we weren't drinking at this kind of off-level mm. you know back in the, in the 60s and 70s you know but a number of changes came into play you know alcohol became more affordable it became more widely available through off-licences and supermarkets mm. it was heavily marketed it is heavily marketed and advertised so there's been a lot of different things that have actually come into play that have meant I suppose that our drinking levels have gone up and they've gone up to very risky levels
1: uh, and what about the levels uh, of alcohol that people had consumed uh, who lost their lives uh, in these fires uh, as uh, this research indicates it it was uh, uh, above uh, three times uh, the legal drink driving level in uh, the case of two-thirds of the people who had alcohol in their system but that's a a very low level and undoubtedly the appropriate level for driving but is it a high level for somebody who's at home at the end of the night going to bed?
5: It is still quite a high level, you know, they, um, the, the, again, I go back to, you know, low risk uh, drinking guidelines and really what you'd be saying there no more than say 11 units for women in a week Mm. men 17 in a a week
1: but you might be over the drink driving level after having a pint or so wouldn't you You so I mean that could be somebody who's had three pints or something like that and then got home at the end of the night
5: Uh, unfortunately actually three pints in fact really would be you know considered um, drinking at a a riskier level Um, really the advice is that you should drink no more than one or two units at a time and certainly that you should have um, you know a couple of days in between where you, you wouldn't drink it at all so talking about three pints that's actually six uh, units um, that, you're, that you're at at that stage or sorry excuse me six mm-hmm. standard drinks mm-hmm. um, and uh, so that is actually quite a high level and uh, even though we would you know in, because in our surroundings here we would say that well that's kind of a normal level of drinking really our, our normal is not normal uh, you know when, when you look at it from a, a risk point of view.
1: Okay We'll leave people with that thought. And uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Dr. Sheila Gilhini, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Alcohol Action Ireland. Now, if you're tired of Brexit, uh, well, perhaps uh, you're not the only one, even those who are very involved in uh, the negotiations, seem to some degree to be tiring of those negotiations and how they continue and continue And there is no end in sight. Uh, We'll just hear a little bit of what Jean-Claude Juncker had to to say about uh, the negotiations or about uh, dealing with the British, or the English, if you like. He was speaking in English.
7: I'm obliged to express myself in English. I don't know why. Because everyone understands English, but nobody understands England.
1: And I think some people will understand what he meant by that. That's uh, Jean-Claude Juncker uh, speaking uh, to reporters yesterday.
5: Michael Reed on, on
1: LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie.
5: Good morning,
8: Michael. And once again, it's Brexit that's dominating this morning. Uh, John from Johada, we'll start with him. He says, at the end of the day, if we want to prevent a return to the troubles, we have to keep both sides happy, Michael. That's why the Good Friday Agreement worked. And at the end of the day, the DUP needs to be kept happy too. Tom from Dundalk. Once again, the DUP is going to prevent a deal happening. They weren't happy with the backstop and now they are still not happy. Do they really want a hard Brexit? That would be an absolute disaster, not just for the Republic, but for the North as well. I cannot understand it, says Tom. Okay. Another listener didn't want to give a name, phoned in. Once again, our hopes were raised and have been dashed again because of the DUP. It was very chilling, Michael, listening to that clip from the new new ira this is what everyone doesn't want to happen and while your guest mr wells is right that we cannot let these people dictate policy the fact is that the threat is there and very real and nobody on any side wants a return to the troubles says mm, this listener okay Michael, can you remind Jim Wells, Matthew text in, that this is the second set of negotiations they said no to? Do they want the best of three? It's a caveman attitude. No, no, no says Matthew.
1: Okay, right. Uh, No uh, sympathy for the views of uh, the Democratic Unionist Party there. Uh, We'll hear more on Brexit and more of uh, those comments a little bit later on in the programme. But let's go to Leinster House where I'm looking at photographs of of uh, people holding banners. Uh, There's a a woman in a cage. Uh, The banner in front of her says no breaks, hashtag caged. Other banners say recognise, not penalise, end the home care crisis, extra bills, reform the carer's allowance and share the care. This is part of a, a protest that was held yesterday by family carers Ireland and Catherine Cox, Head of Communications, on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Catherine and thanks for joining us People are not just disappointed, I take it, over what was not uh, announced in uh, the budget for next year, but uh, they would appear to be somewhat angry.
9: Indeed, Michael, Um, and that's exactly why we felt we had to take to the streets yesterday. So uh, we had probably over 100 family carers there. Um, We had another close to 2,000 who signed a petition saying they really wanted to be there but couldn't, unfortunately, due to their caring roles. But look, um, yeah, carers were very angry and frustrated by the budget last week um we had looked for for example we had looked for an additional 4.4 million hours of home care just to keep pace with the current demand and the waiting list that is there there's about seven and a half thousand families waiting on care in the country today Um, so uh, we had looked for that we got about one million hours which might sound like a lot but actually will go less than a quarter of the way towards meeting just the current demand for home care. Um, we had also looked for the income disregard for the carer's allowance, which is a carer's payment, um, to be increased because at the moment only one in four carers in the country get the carer's allowance payment and that's a weekly payment, it's about €219 Euro per week um, and Carers should get that if they're providing care for loved ones, but the reality is because it's means tested and the means test has not, the income disregard has not changed in 11 years and um, that's why three out of four carers, unfortunately, don't get it. So we had asked for that income disregard. I mean, the, the, I suppose the ideal situation is that if somebody is caring for somebody, um, they should get carers allowance because they're caring full-time, they're providing full-time care. It's usually 24-7. Um, it should be based on the need rather than the means of a person. Um, but we didn't look for the abolishment of the um, means test because we think we would love to see that happen, but it might be a step too far. Currently, but we did look at the means test disregard the increase so it would bring far more full-time carers, in particular into the net but they did nothing to address that in the budget
1: Pascal Donoghue said uh, his uh, budget announcements were overshadowed by Brexit Regina Doherty told us she was disappointed she wasn't able to do more for people and she had to prioritise in uh, how to spend her budget for next year uh, the minister came out to meet you what did she have to say to you?
9: She did and you know we had met her before uh, the budget as well and one of the things we had looked for was that the amount of hours that carers could work outside the home would be increased from 18 and a half hours and the minister did uh, deliver that in the budget unfortunately because they didn't increase the income disregard. It means for many of those carers who might choose and be able to work those additional hours, they could actually be penalized by their carers allowance being reduced. So uh, an unintentional consequence, um, but at the same time, it does penalize carers um, if they, in many cases, if they do those extra hours. So unfortunately, um, in one way, it was given with one hand and taken away almost with the other. Um, and again, I do think it was unintentional, but but that has been the result of it. So I suppose, you know, that that's why carers are frustrated, that's why they're angry um, and that's why they they feel that at this point they have to do something fairly drastic to get the attention of government.
1: Okay, thanks for that. Catherine Cox, Head of Communications with Family Carers Ireland. Now going back to Brexit, uh, it looks as though there could very well be another extension uh, in terms of the deadline, which as you know is uh, the 31st of October. The Swedish European Minister is how Dahlgren and he said as much to the BBC this morning.
3: Well uh, I think all leaders have said that if there is a substantial reason to have an extension they will go along with that because the alternative for the EU to act in a way that would lead to the United Kingdom crashing out of the EU is not a good one.
1: So what would that substantial reason be? Would it be a referendum
3: That has been mentioned as one of the substantial reasons, possible substantial reasons for uh, uh, providing an extension, but uh, it's up to the British political system to decide, of course.
7: But would Sweden welcome it if it were to happen?
3: Because it would, of we, course, we would delay would not, things, would wouldn't not, it? Uh,
7: Potentially right into next year, we, we a new not, commission and all the rest of it. What would your view be of it? We
3: would not stand against the possibility to uh, have an organised departure and uh, we will not be the ones who will make it uh, uh, crashing out of the UK, of the EU happening. That That's not our choice.
1: Hans Dahlgren, uh, the Swedish Europe Minister speaking to BBC Radio 4 this morning and it does look as though there is uh, the real prospect uh, that the people of uh, the United Kingdom will have to vote in uh, another referendum. This is not something that Nigel Farage would welcome as he said on LBC
10: yesterday. You talk about it being rushed through. It's been three and a half years. And how many times has Boris said the 31st of October? About 5,000. Anybody that thinks that we're nearing the final phase of this hasn't got a clue. Because if we do sign up to this new treaty, uh, then that is just the beginning. We will have done the easy bit. The withdrawal agreement will prove to have been the easy bit. The hard bit will be being subject to their rules and their judgments, negotiating the rest of it. When you say an extension, I mean... (sighs) How many more times are the public supposed to put up with a cam being kicked down the road?
1: Nigel Farage on LBC yesterday, and he's referring there, Marie, to that two-year period that you were uh, wondering a- about yesterday. Yes. This is if they strike a deal, well, then they'll have two years to come up with how it'll work in practice.
8: I know, I'd actually forgotten about that, Michael. There's to be that many twists and turns. And uh, here we are back again. Okay. And uh, if I can just have one more comment on Brexit and I have a couple of others, if we have time. Mm. Uh, David from Kells says, that he believes that Boris Johnson is capable of anything, he has proved that, and he could well go with no deal, and if he does that, well, the only ones to blame would be the DUP. I
4: there
1: don't know what go. Boris Johnson has proved at all, <laughs> he, he's proved that he's well capable of dumbfounding almost everybody in the world but uh, <laughs> other than that, I'm not sure what he has proved.
8: The, in relation to your conversation with uh, Dr Sheila Gilhini from Alcohol Action Ireland, grown on your phone, Jenna, she's not surprised with the Findings. She says that many people, when they have a few drinks on the Michael, at the end of the night, often they get hungry and they start cooking. They can forget about mm. cooking and... Uh, accidents can happen and also the same with in relation to open fires, forgetting to put a guard in front of them and she says it's something she drills mm. into her adult children all the time because she sees it happening so often.
1: Yeah, well that's it. Frying pan, chip pan, fire yes. guard, cigarettes, yes. all these kind of things uh, can lead uh, to those problems. People falling asleep, smoking that's right. uh, yes. is a, 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 big a big problem, thing. I think. Yes. Yeah.
8: Mm-hmm. Uh, John from Bulbriggan was listening to your interview yesterday with Deputy John Curran from Fianna Fáil, just surrounding that legislation to protect children been brought into the drugs trade, being used uh, by drug dealers and he says that uh, what he wants to know is why there's not more discussion about the sentencing uh, uh, given to those who are found with uh, like large values worth of drugs. He feels that the sentences should be tougher and he would like to see more discussion around this. Okay. And then finally, Martin from RD phoned in. He was listening in from the Lord's Hospital on the same topic and he feels that more should be done to prevent drugs coming into Ireland in the first place. Can there not be more patrols at the ports to stop this? He says I'm very worried as I have a daughter and grandchildren and we need to protect them from these drugs.
1: Okay. Hope you're well, Martin. Thanks for the call and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. Thanks, Marie, for that matter. If you'd like to add to what's being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 18571595 of Michael,
5: Michael
1: Reid on, on LMFM. Now, we uh, us uh, talk about uh, matters other than Brexit, uh, although uh, undoubtedly they'll come into play. Uh, in fact, uh, they will come into play to begin with uh, the first part of our conversation uh, with Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash, who's with us in uh, the studio. Uh, and you raised uh, the issue of the minimum wage in the Shannon yesterday uh, on foot on <laughs> of uh, many times raising it before, <laughs> but also on foot of uh, Sinn Féin motion that went before the Dáil the other night. Uh, but Brexit was the reason why you were told the increase in the minimum wage has been
11: postponed. Well, we've been raising this for some time now because the, the minister, uh, not a foot of any motion, happened to occur at all. Um The reality is that the Minister for Social Protection has been spinning furiously over the last couple of weeks that she had planned to delay, as she described it, the introduction of the planned 30 cent an hour increase to the national minimum wage that was due to take effect on the 1st of January on the basis of a potential uh, hard Brexit. Now we've subsequently learned that um, in fact this is not a deferral at all, this is a, or a postponement it's mm. actually a cancellation uh, and uh, without complicating things um, any more than they need to be complicated, the legislation that gave rise to the Low Pay Commission, which is the statutory body that the government which I served set up to review on an annual basis, the rate of the national minimum wage and to make a recommendation for government to government on that it says very clearly that essentially there's one opportunity a year to review the national minimum wage and one opportunity per year and for the Minister that because, to sign an because order. Because
1: that was questioned yesterday. John Paul Phelan responded to you in the challenge and he said he wasn't uh, aware that uh, the Commission was precluded from uh, re-entering its proposals.
11: Yeah, I like I said I was kind of a little bit surprised about that and he did acknowledge that I may have more expertise for to borrow a phrase, on on these particular issues, um, in that I was the architect of that legislation and uh, I essentially wrote that legislation and guided it through the houses of the Oireachtas. I did that on the basis that what we wanted to do was kind of take the politics out of setting the rate of the minimum wage because previous to um, the establishment of the Low Pay Commission, which reviews the annual wage Mm. on an evidence Mm. basis, so we have a group of business leaders, a group of academics, a group of trade union leaders, who come together under the auspices of a professional chair uh, who's very experienced Mm. with the support of uh, civil servants, a statutory body that's actually set up to look at what kind of minimum wage can Mm businesses um, absorb in this country, what sort of minimum wage do people require to assist them, at least to be able to make ends Mm. meet, and that the economy can can support. So previously before the Low Pay Commission was set up, what would happen would be infrequent reviews of the minimum wage, and almost at a ministerial whim, the national minimum wage would be increased, uh, or in fact not as was more often the case and it could be um, you could be waiting years for an increase in the national minimum wage and national minimum wage increases didn't keep pace with wage growth in the economy and that I think is, is anybody would, would I think everybody who said was deeply deeply or, or unfair. So we're trying to take the politics out of the minimum wage. In other words it wasn't a plaything of a minister or a particular government in the event of a, a slight downturn or in the event of um, some economic issues arising that we have th- this evidence base hmm. that would inform what the rate of the minimum wage should be. Now we've Situation that, because of the threat of a hard Brexit, uh, that the minister has decided to not just cancel or not just mm. uh, postpone, but actually to cancel the yeah. minimum wage. Increase. So
1: so the legal effect is that this can't be, can't be revisited. revisited until be next reviewed. October. I'm very clear on that. Okay. This is not a postponed
11: okay. this is a can- well it would be revisited by the Low Pay Commission next July, who yeah. will make a report yeah. in the normal scheme normal way to the Minister yeah. and then the next possible increase to the minimum wage won't take effect till the first of january twenty twenty one. Now this is in a time following next October Absolutely this yeah. is in okay. a time, Michael, when waging wage increase across the economy are going to average three to four percent Next year, inflation as well is going to reach about one and a half to two percent. So, those on the lowest incomes in Ireland will be hammered by this because Mm. they will not see an increase to their wages, but they'll see an increase in food costs, an increase in Mm. energy costs. That's Uh, absolutely and worse still if there is a Brexit. Well, if there is a Brexit, but but the way the point I've always made, and we've we've made uh, made provision for this in our own alternative budget proposals, we've set aside one point two billion euros uh, of state funding to support small businesses, to support farmers, Mm. to support industries that would be affected in the event of a hard Brexit there's no evidence whatsoever to say that a cut to the minimum wage or keeping the minimum wage at this level will save a single job or save a single business. When Fianna Fáil cut the minimum wage uh, in the, the, the late 2000s at the first sign of uh, an economic downturn, remember they cut it by one euro, it didn't create a single job, it didn't, sa- didn't save a single business. The evidence is there, the economic evidence from professional researchers shows that small incremental improvements mm. to the minimum wage don't affect jobs.
1: Okay, let's talk about a, a separate subject all together and uh, the ethnic cleansing that's taking place in northern Syria now, the massacre of uh, the Kurds by President Erdogan, uh, the Turkish president. But it's on foot of this dreadful, dreadful decision that has been taken by Donald Trump. Uh, This is an issue that you raised in the Shannon yesterday, uh, described it as unacceptable and uh, said uh, that it was as a result of the actions of Trump. Uh, You've called... uh, On the government to call in the Turkish ambassador, uh, which I think may have happened. Uh, But what about the American role in all of this? Uh, Trump himself has been condemned by the House of Representatives, Democrats, uh, and Republicans for that matter.
11: That's right. I think he's rattled by that, and um, listeners may have seen at least images of Nancy Pelosi, um, the Speaker, taking him on at a meeting between Democrats and the uh, Donald Trump administration uh, yesterday. Uh, Nancy Pelosi actually went as far as expressing some concerns about the President's health um, and described his reaction to her yesterday as him having a meltdown. And that's the situation we're in. But Donald Trump's um, attitude and Donald Trump's actions are costing lives. Mm. Uh, and I think there was an inevitability uh, that his um, very limited grasp of foreign policy, a limited grasp of uh, the function of, of the US in the world and particularly that part of the world was always going to cost lives. And this goes bit back of a to him, fascist, isn't he? Well this goes this goes back
1: to him. This is the type of behaviour you'd expect from a Nazi.
11: Well, you know, he's a, he's a narrow nationalist, mm. doesn't believe that the US has... Well, well, he turned his back on people who had allied themselves since, to since, him since, since and the second said, World well, they,
1: they didn't help us in the Second World War, they can die.
11: It's absolute ignorance, um, absolute ignorance, um, and even regardless of whatever function or otherwise uh, the Kurdish people uh, had in the Second World War, uh, that doesn't matter. I mean, this is actually about trying to promote peace, trying to promote security in a very unstable region of the world. Uh, Listeners won't need to be reminded that the um, Kurds played a very significant role in defeating uh, the Islamic State death cult in northern Syria. Um, That whole area is an absolute tinderbox, and because Donald Trump has pulled out American troops from that area who are supporting uh, the uh, Kurdish uh, forces, uh, what we have now is a massacre on our hands. Mm -hmm. We have... uh, couple hundred thousand people at least, displaced. Uh, Russia now have a foothold in the area which they always wanted. Mm. Uh, And Donald Trump now believes that this is just a matter to be settled between uh, Syria, Turkey and the Kurds. It absolutely isn't. The Kurdish people are probably one of the most oppressed peoples uh, across this world. Uh, They're uh, people who are spread across Turkey, Syria, Iraq and Iran. They're stateless people. Um, They're an honourable um, uh, people uh, and all they want is uh, essentially their own homeland. They've essentially got a a semi-autonomous state, uh, for the want of a better description, in northern Syria. There's been relative peace there uh, over the last um, period of time and now this has absolutely exploded again because of the ignorant actions of Donald Trump.
1: Mm. Uh, and of course, Erdogan. Uh, well,
11: uh, uh, Erdogan's been given the green light um, yeah. by Trump removing uh, the troops. And it's too, but, but, too late but, but, to but impose it, sanctions. But, but, but
1: doesn't it? But doesn't it also? I mean. Uh, Trump is acting like a, a Nazi uh, and, and that's uh, as generous as I can be to him in what I'd have to say about what's happening here. But when it comes to Turkey, uh, we're looking at a, a country that uh, is hoping to eventually gain EU membership. Uh, this really calls into question the morality of uh,
11: the establishment there, doesn't it? Well, that process has stalled and stalled some time ago um, given what's been going on, uh, that uh, move towards uh, autocracy. Um, and authoritarianism uh, in Turkey, which everybody is concerned about. Uh, I have many friends um, from Turkey who live in this area, who live in Ireland, and absolutely condemn uh, the actions. Those actions weren't taken in their uh, name. Um, it's appalling um, the way that Erdogan is is behaving uh, and that the regime is behaving, claiming that he wants to create a buffer zone within another country. Mm. Uh, but, of course, there's a long history um, between Turkey uh, and the Uh, Kurdish um, people, and we need to be uh, mindful of that. Um, A long, long history, indeed, and a long and and, and very damaging um, history. Um, The sanctions introduced by the US are, I think, laughable. Um, Mm. It's, um, you know, uh, doing this after the horse has bolted, as it were. uh, uh, And and knowing that the horse was going to to bolt. anyway. Mm. And uh, the uh, EU, I know EU states, Mm. at least those that produce weapons and so Mm. on, have stopped selling Mm. weapons to Turkey. I mean, uh, but crea- this is creating that this buffer is zone. Meal.
1: I mean, crea- you're talking about Nazis creating that buffer zone is a bit like taking the Jews out of the cities and putting them into camps, isn't it?
11: Yeah, I mean, this is yeah. this is this it's is this ethnic is, this, cleansing. This, it, this is this this it is. I, I, that's a, a very strong term mm. um, and and has lots of different connotations. We can't say that, but what we can say is that this is an absolutely abhorrent act and something that needs to stop. And the international mm. community needs to to act. The problem is our nation states listening to the international community any longer Um, the US whether we like it or not well at their
1: peril if they're not uh, because because the the effort that took place in Syria was uh, to oppress ISIS uh, which uh, the Americans did successfully with the support of the Kurds Uh, and uh, it's ISIS now that may see a resurgence as a result of this we saw ISIS uh, storm that camp that Lisa Smith was in Uh, she's uh, said uh, now to be on her way into Turkey uh, and trying to sell her story to Irish media uh, again uh, again, uh, another related issue uh, I- 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 in terms of what's happening there now at
11: the moment. Yeah, that's another mm. element uh, of this. I mean, we have huge displacement, as I said earlier on, of, of people across that region, um, it's very, very dangerous um, indeed. Uh, this needs to stop. Um, I mean, I know Mike Pence uh, and uh, other senior U.S. officials are in Turkey today, but I think that's a fairly piecemeal kind of exercise to give the impression and the president uh, might that they, speak to them. They, they said that originally they, wouldn't that they wanted, and he said he would. You know, once mm. that once mm. this genie is out of the bottle, mm. it's very hard to get that genie um, back in, and this this is the problem. And given the complexities and the different layers of of, 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 of what happens mm. in that area um, and the different allegiances, uh, different geopolitical kind of allegiances. Uh, this isn't going to end any time soon and could only get more complicated over the next period of time. Mm. How complicated? Who knows? I mean, the whole area is a tinderbox. Um, this is the problem. And uh, whether we like it or not, um, the mm. um, US and, we well, different views about the US's role mm. in the world um, positively and negatively in terms of military interventions and so on and we can go back to history and say well maybe some mm. of these conflicts have been caused by mm. by um uh, the I know you said you've f- friends
1: from Turkey uh, and you've also said that uh, the world needs to look at what's happening and respond to it uh, but what about people listening to us uh, should there be a boycott uh, of turkey of turkey turkish produce uh, and indeed as a, a lot of people listening to us uh, who would holiday in turkey
11: well we've good relationships in this country with Turkey and in the first yeah, instance we need but, to use our why, own influence why don't we influence. send them a message why, we, we, we need to mm. use our own influence with the mm. Turkish people to try to make sure and I say the Turkish mm. people uh, and the Turkish government mm. indeed to try to uh, make sure that this uh, uh, aggression stops um, I don't believe that the Minister for Foreign Affairs has called the ambassador in yet. Um, I believe that in the normal course of diplomatic events this is what happens. Uh, the displeasure, uh, if I can put it like that, yeah. of the Irish people needs to be expressed very clearly to uh, the Turkish government. We want this to stop. Uh, this is not an action that, uh, you know, this is an action that we condemn. The US actually House has condemned this now mm-hmm. by, by mm-hmm. extension, mm-hmm. by condemning Trump they've condemned yep. by extension the action yep. Yep. of the Erdogan um, government. So we should be As using should. our place in the the wor- in, in the world as a neutral yeah, country, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a country that that is respected, mm. to try to get get this this to stop. We've good relationships with Turkey. Uh, I would like to see those relationships continue, but we also have a responsibility mm. to condemn these actions very very clearly, very very honestly, and very very forcibly. And I want our government to do that.
1: But do we do that by continuing as is, or or? Do we take action as individuals and boycott Turkish produce and not well, well, what, spend time well, in that well, country? What,
11: what we do, I mean, if you're talking about sanctions, for example, sanctions can't be unilaterally introduced. No,
1: no, but people can decide not state. to go on That's holidays in Bodrum or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, people yeah, people
11: could decide mm, to make mm, their own yeah, protests yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, in that mm, regard. Mm, absolutely. And people will... will, will perhaps do that hmm. um, and that's something that's up to individuals and their own conscience Alright we we'll leave it there thank you indeed for coming into us uh, this morning Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash, Michael,
5: Michael Reid on, on LMFM
1: Now I think we'll do well. we're very good at it. we're going to tell you a very simple story in a very complicated way bear with us because there was a bit of rain on Monday. Actually, there was an awful lot of rain on Monday. Uh, Quite heavy rain in particular in uh, the Drogheda area and uh, I mentioned the Drogheda area because that's uh, the centre of our story where people were stuck in their cars wondering what was going on and why the traffic was backed up to extremes as the case Mm -hmm. was in certain parts of the town. Uh, There were also some businesses in the town who were told they were at risk of flooding. Uh, There was no yellow warning, never mind a red warning or an orange warning or anything like that. There was heavy rain. Uh, And uh, businesses were told, I don't think there was high tides either, businesses were told that uh, there was a risk of flooding and the council was going to provide them with sandbags. Uh, Why was this the case? Well, manholes were overflowing uh, because of the rain? Yeah, to some degree, but because of what was underground or what was happening underground or the pipe system. Now, we put a, a number of questions to Irish Water... About all of this uh, and uh, eventually I think we got to the bottom of it. Let's uh, talk uh, about what has been causing such significant traffic uh, uh, disruption in Drogheda, not just on Monday but over a long period of time and putting businesses in the town at risk of flooding. Paul Bell, the Mayor of Drogheda is with us. Good morning to you thank you for joining us. Uh, as I say, it's... A relatively straightforward story, uh, 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 but uh, uh, went about it in a very complicated way. Uh, there's a, a pipe that's blocked. That's the simple story, isn't it?
0: Well, I have to compliment you, Michael, and your team, and, and first of all, on the investigation that was undertaken into this matter. Uh, some of the communications, uh, obviously, through the email trail, tell a particular story. Uh, and In some cases, somebody was indicating, well, it had all to do with the treatment plant on the, the Marsh Road and so forth. But anybody that knows anything about the area and also would recall Hardman's Gardens have the same problem. Uh, For as long as I can remember, there has been flooding at the bus station or that area, even before the bus station came into operation there, because many people remember that the bus station was located off St Mary's Bridge uh, on the south side of the river. And uh, ever since the... I can remember, well over 40 years, there has been continually flooding there at certain times. Uh, certain walks were undertaken in the area. They have not been successful. Uh, and again, as you rightly say, there's been issues with flooding. In July, uh, there was some very serious flooding. Uh, once you had any type of heavy downpour of rain, and a lot of people were trying to you know, equate, mm. well, it's to do with not cleaning the drains. Of mm. course, as we know, every drain, every grate, uh in the area, especially on the Road, was cleaned in the lineup mm. to Flark and the heron. Mm. Everything had to be done. So, so it wasn't
1: that. It wasn't that, uh, it was, uh, it was uh, never that. Uh, and you mentioned the waste uh, treatment plant. Uh, yes. don't want to confuse anybody. We did ask uh, yes. Irish Water if it had anything to do yes. with that. Uh, were they diverting water so that that wouldn't overflow? They said, no, that's not the case. Uh, they went into some detail yes. explaining to us what they do in circumstance, circumstances like that. Uh, and uh, it nothing to do with that. So we said, well, mm. what is it? What is causing the flow?
0: Well, the question was raised by myself, just by chance. It's a similar mm. question you put yourself. At the September uh, borough council meeting, to the engineers to say there are a number of areas in the town that are suffering from flooding, especially when there's a you know a heavy rainfall. What is the exact problem in relation to the uh, to Dunor Road, the bus station, and again mm. and, and Michael, you, you quite rightly point out you're talking about a major artery route in and out of the town. Mm. The engineer on, at the meeting explained that the infrastructure, being the piping system did not have the capacity to actually release water uh, from heavy rainfall in that area, mm. and that a number of uh, surface water infrastructures were feeding into it, into it. Now, we did say at that stage, well, and myself and other councillors, well, that's all very well. If we're going to suffer more and more rainfalls like this, and we do notice that we yeah. are, and we're only in the summer period, and we're going into the autumn period, yeah. and we're going to go into the winter period, what is going to happen? Because in some cases, the manhole systems uh, outside the bus station actually lift up. Yep. They actually fly mm. off mm. The, the surface of the road. Like a geyser. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, very dangerous. Mm. Uh, what What's going to be done? So engineering at that stage would have said, well, as far as we're concerned, at this stage, this is a problem for Irish water. Yep. Uh, well, maybe it is and I, it probably is at this stage. And it however, seems to be
1: from the response yeah. we've received uh, from However, Irish Water,
0: yeah. mm. there's no point now in sitting on hands and shrugging mm. shoulders. This matter has to be dealt with and this will be a major piece of
7: infrastructural
1: work. Right, well let's spell it out as Irish Water did spell it out to us uh, eventually in their email. They say that there's a restriction in a pipe Absolutely and that that's causing capacity. the flooding issue. They also say that it's a difficult situation because of uh, the length and depth of the pipe and that it's in an urban environment uh, and that you'd have to disrupt the town in order to fix the pipe. But uh, let's talk about what happened just by yes. way of example. Last Monday, uh, for people who know Drogheda, we're talking about one of the biggest blocks in Drogheda. Yes. And the traffic was bumper to bumper all mm-hmm. the way up the Rathbullen Road until it got to the corner of Marley's Lane. And then it was bumper to bumper all the way down down to the bottom of that road until it got to the Donor Road. And then it was bumper to bumper all the way down to the bus station. So you're talking about a whole block of the town where the traffic was stopped. You're also talking about the council coming out to local businesses and providing them with sandbags. And why? Because of a burst pipe. Fine, these things happen. Mm. But is this going to happen again?
0: Well, unless this matter is addressed uh, and there's now an increasing difficulty there because of the, the frequency of heavy rainfalls this is going to continue uh, in in July of this year and I go back to July, it's midsummer. basically saying on one Friday evening again the same thing happened except it happened at a time of evening where traffic volume was low however the road was completely flooded uh, the shop in the uh, facing the bus depot was there uh, obviously concerned that their premise would be flooded uh, even vehicles like buses could not drive through and the area was completely sealed off. Uh, For my part, at this stage as mayor of the town, I have now placed a motion on the council's agenda for um, for November, uh, apologies for November, on the basis that we need to know, are Irish Water going to address this matter? Uh, When are they going to address the matter? And what are the plans? Because you correct, rightly say, say, Michael, this will be serious disruption in, in the town. But at the end of the day, it's better to have the disruption in dealing with the infrastructure than continually deal with flooding. We also have to call out the county council. We have to call out the fire service uh, to try and, and obviously deal with this. The other thing I want to say to you, what people need to understand, the flooding itself is coming from underground, which means that the capacity of the pipe network there is backing up, and that's why the water is coming up. It's coming up through the manhole system. It's not surface water per
1: se. Okay. So it's disruption for a limited time that yes. you want. That might be a number yes, of months. That's bite the bullet. But rather than this continuous, repeated, ongoing yeah. disruption. And,
0: and this this type of issue, by the way, Michael, as some of your listeners would remember, was resolved in the Harbin's Gardens area mm. of Drogheda. Again, though, that's when the County Council was in charge of the water okay. infrastructure. They had to sink a fairly large pipe in that area and it did address the issue. Okay. But this is, I, was, mm. I, I would like to, to understand from Irish Water what their envisaged costs are there because I, I, I do think that that's probably one of the things that's
1: prohibiting them from getting basically focused on addressing that issue. Okay. Well, we've got to the heart of the matter. Thank you Thank for you, joining Michael. us uh, this morning, Mayor of Drogheda, Paul Bell. Now, news from Europe is that a deal has been reached between uh, the Brexit European Brexit negotiators and the UK negotiators. Boris Johnson is describing it as a great new deal for Brexit. I suppose time will tell if that is uh, the case and if he can get it through the House of Commons over the weekend.
5: Michael Reed
1: on LMFM. The Joint Policing Committee met in Meath last night. It's uh, the first such meeting since uh, the announcement that Meath is to lose its Garda headquarters as part of an amalgamation with West Meath under a new restructuring plan. Marie Kearns was in Kells and she spoke to people on their way into the meeting about uh, the concerns that they have. And she first spoke with Chief Superintendent Fergus Healy, who will lead the newly configured Meath West Division, and she asked him if people had reason to be worried.
10: Uh, no, I don't think they have. Uh, it's more efficiencies that's been brought about with regard to the management layers within the organisation. And uh, the headquarters is moving uh, from Navan to Mullingar, but I suppose the real issue is that the policing service the people on the ground won't change. Our aim is to improve it and to provide a service to the community that's fit for purpose. Yeah, look, the, the aim here really is to try and take guards out of offices and put them back on the, on the beat and on patrol where they're required. And you know, uh, I suppose the system that we've been working under since 1855, which is the existing one, which has now been changed, it is labour-intensive and as such it requires a lot of people at desks where they should be out you know what I mean, policing streets and policing the communities which they're uh, engaged to do. So the aim is really to improve the services to the community on the front line.
8: And in terms of your own position, you were Chief Superintendent in Meath. Now you're going to have the added joy of another uh, county. Is that a tough challenge for you?
10: Ah, I suppose, look, it's uh, one of these things that you you just have to get on with it. And uh, whilst uh, the area itself has has, uh, increased, you know, we're policing from draw they over as far as that loan which is a fairly wide span uh, geographical area but you know we have the resources within the uh, division to uh, to do that and with the aim of you know maybe reallocating some of the people to different places where they're required as and when the demand uh, dictates well then you know we I mean, we're in a better position to do that and we can move more people around to deal with problems as when they arise i've been here since 2016 and I've uh, 37 years policing experience in general so I think it's just one of these things that you just have to get on with it and I look forward to the challenges, I suppose my heart lies in Mead in, in the sense that I originate from there, but uh, you know, you have to be professional about these things and you have to provide the services and manage them accordingly.
8: Chair of the Mead Joint Policing Committee, Independent Councillor Francis Dean, however, is not convinced.
4: Like We have a population of 196,000 people here in Mead. I have nothing against West Mead they're talking about. Position it there, in Mullingar, with a population of over 80,000. Me personally, I think Navan will be the right location for it. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, we need the presence of guards on the streets. And if it's, I'd be just afraid that it just—it's the confidence in the guards. And I'd like to see more guards on foot patrol. We have a lot of issues. Within the Navan area, even within County Mead, a lot of issues with, in relation to antisocial behaviour. Drugs has got to be a big issue now. Look, at, at the end of the day, I'd like to see the presence of the headquarters. I'd love to see it in Navan, And I hope, to, myself personally, that they might reverse the decision in the coming months.
8: These members of the public shared their views i'm Francis Murphy, and I'm from Old Johnson Village in Avon. We've big concerns because the the parish of Johnson is getting bigger and the parish of Navon is huge, and I think it's badly needed and we're really going to miss them. and what are you worried about? um I suppose antisocial behavior if they go it's the main you know. The just there, and if they go well, I think it's going
7: to get worse again. Uh, Mead is far bigger than uh, Westmead, a bigger population. And at the present time, it's very hard to get a guard anywhere. And to bring the, the head office from Mead into Westmead is a major fault. That's my opinion, and it should be reversed. It's trying to get a guard when you're in trouble, it's, a bit, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible. I had a personal problem last week with uh, vandalism. I rang the guards. I let the phone ring for 15 minutes, and the guard never answered it. But we'll, exactly. still have a, we'll still have guard stations here. Well, the way it is here in, in, in Kells at the present time, you can't get a guard. And well, if, it goes, if, if the major headquarters goes to Westmead, you're going to have less chance of getting a guard, aren't you? That worries me.
8: Gerard Weldon, you're here tonight as a member of the public. What brings you here to the Joint Pleasing Committee?
7: I'm here tonight because I have two questions down, two issues that I've raised for tonight's meeting. And one of them is certainly in relation to drugs and the drug lords who are, seem to have a free hand in this country. Uh, the country is awash with drugs, and they also have an issue around data protection. It seems there are community alert groups, and there's one in our area, that's Broomfield and District, and uh, we cooperate with the yardies since 1991, and we have to have data protection policies. We have to appoint a data uh, controller. We have to have a register of all interested parties. And my question for them tonight is, is is this about protecting data or about protecting people? And for me, it's about protecting people and the vulnerable in our society. So it's time we cop down in this country and talk less about rules and regulations and just got tough with the criminals.
8: In relation then to the amalgamation of Mm. the divisions, does that bother you?
7: Well, as I said, these are the priorities for me tonight. But Garda stations should be open. The garda, a lot of gather stations were closed in actual fact some of them were sold uh, at a, a knockdown price and that has never been explained so they need to get guards on the beat again and locals need to know the local yard, and the local Garda need to know the locals uh, for me it's how quick a Garda car can come to me or any of my neighbours if they're needed, where it comes from is irrelevant to me but they need to be on the job on the ball in the communities that's where they need to be guarding the people
8: Independent Councillor David Gilroy says that we need to see how the new restructuring of the Garda divisions will work
12: I, I'm interested in uh, seeing that the Garda resources are, are being used the correct way and uh, operationally wise I think if, if we're going to see more guards on the street if we're going to see more guards active on the roads if we're going to see more guards and this is a means by which it can happen I think the jurisdiction wise um, you know the geographical Jurisdiction so coming from somewhere like Athboy, which is on the perimeters of the of the Meath district, as it was. The hope is now that the, the movement over to Mullingar, maybe those areas that were a little bit more on the fringes in the past, may become more central actually now with regards to Garda um, resources. Um, but again, I, I would I would certainly say I know that um, that the aspirations is to provide the best Garda resort Garda service that's possible. So I would say that this would be operationally wise, hopefully, uh, something that's a positive step forward with regards to with regards to policing in County Meath and now West Meath. Um, and something that we will see increased numbers uh, and, and and underscoring or the greater res- resumption of confidence in, in, the, in the policing of our areas. Um, something I know that they might be a member of the JPC. I know that uh, that is that is something that we, as a collective, whether we're elected representatives or uh, or members of the force or members or community representatives, what we really want to do is to have good gar- good policing in our areas, and so people feel safe. If it results in better operational d- division management, um, that's something I would say is, is a positive so it remains to be seen but hopefully, hopefully it
1: will be Independent Councillor David Kilroy uh, bringing a uh, conclusion uh, to that a report uh, from Marie Kearns who was attending the Joint Policing Committee meeting that took place in Kells last evening. On the day that uh, they say that a deal has been struck between the EU and uh, the UK, a deal that the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is uh, describing as a great deal with Europe for the British, a great deal that takes back control he says. Undoubtedly he means for the people of the United Kingdom, but he may be in for a surprise because it's also the day that DUP has said That as things stand, they cannot back what has been agreed at this stage. Anyway, the Brexit talks will continue, I'm sure, for some time, but that's where our programme comes to its conclusion for today because our time has run out on us once again. Before we go, let me remind you that there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Chris Murray in the Control Tower. I'm Michael, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.